The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through mission, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. The scripture reading for today comes from Ecclesiastics 4. Then I saw all toil and all skill and woe come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity after striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better the handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is end to all this toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he asks, For who am I, depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward to their toil. When they, for the one they fall, one of them lifts up his fellow. But who to him is who is alone when he falls? and he does not have another to lift. Him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is quickly broken, is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who was no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move under the sun. Along with that, youth was stand to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people of whom he led. Yet those people come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is vanity and striving afterward. Good morning, Restoration Southside. Welcome back. We're glad that you're here with us. We intend to be worshiping in person or some form of that very soon, and we'll keep you posted on the details. But for now, I just want to say thank you. I know it's not the same logging into a website and sitting on a couch, but I appreciate your persistence and perseverance with us, and I'm glad that we're in this together. Let me point you to Ecclesiastes 4, the second portion of it. As you can tell, we've been working through the different experiences that we look to find meaning in, and the author just keeps exposing those things, saying you ultimately can't find meaning on this side of glory, under the sun. You can't find meaning in money and in fame and in experiences and justice and relationships and lots of different things. And now we come to the point where he's going to expose that you can't ultimately find meaning in relationships. In this, he'll mean relationships to work, relationships to fame or notoriety, and relationships to people. But as we continue our study of Ecclesiastes and Ecclesiastes 4, would you join me in prayer and ask that God would bless our study of his word this morning? Let's pray. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I thank you and I praise you uh, that you speak to us honestly. 
and that the things that we would be distracted by that would cause us to turn our eyes away from Jesus, you're kind to poke holes in them. I pray that you would help us to be thoughtful and wise in our study this morning as we explore uh, Ecclesiastes 4. I pray that you'll fill it with the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. We need your presence. In Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. My son Knox was recently explaining to me why me as a pastor have the best job in the entire world. Knox said this, you get to stand up in front of people and speak to them. You get to have them all look at you. You get to talk. And dad, you have so many fans. So many fans. So I might want to be a pastor too. It made me smile as he was talking because there's an honesty to it. There's an honesty to saying, I want to be famous. I want to be known. I want to be celebrated. And there's a little bit in that, of that in my heart too. Even as I started ministry, wanting something great, something meaningful, to be known for having done something worthwhile. It's a little bit like John and James coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, we want to be at your right and your left. Yes, God, we want to serve you, but we want to be known because we serve you. It shows that Knox's heart is not far from my own and that Ecclesiastes speaks directly to it. This passage will focus on our different relationships, our relationships to work, our relationships to fame or, a, or sort of advancement, and then our relationships with people. Work with fame, or achievement, and then with people. We all struggle to have appropriate relationships with the world around us. Because of who Jesus is, we must come running to him. Well, first of all, the author here will walk through these three different categories and he'll use different words comparing and contrasting them. We'll glance with me in verses 4 and we'll do the first comparison. Contentment is better than envy. This outline was helped by my studying of Phil Riken. Contentment is better than envy. It says in verse 4, Then I saw all the toil and skill and work come home, come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. Essentially, he's saying it's all the toil, all the work, the things that we pour our lifeblood into, all of that toil is meaningless and vain. After all, it's a chasing after the wind. There's three different things I want you to see in this, that contentment is better than envy. I want you to see the envy, the laziness, and then the contentment. The envy, the laziness, and then the contentment. Envy. The problem with so much of our relationship to work is that it's based off of envy. You know this. It's the reason that Facebook and Instagram can be so difficult for some of us because it's having things constantly put before our eyes that we want and that others have. 
He said, I saw all the toil and skill and work come from a man's envy as his neighbor. Isn't that true for us? We do want more money so that we can have a nicer house like our friends have, like we can have better vacations like our friends have better vacations, so that we can have better experiences like our friends have these awesome experiences. So much of why we work so hard and pour ourselves into these things is because we're trying to find meaning in what other people have, thinking that it's given them that meaning. And what he's saying in this text is that it will not be enough. That's not the way that envy works. You're glancing over into your neighbor's yard, wanting what he has, and he's glancing over into someone else's yard, wanting what that person has. He's saying, whatever you work for and pour yourself into, there is not a moment coming where you say, I've worked enough. I have exactly what I want. Envy is in our hearts and it comes out in the way that we work and play. When I watch my two sons together, Connor and Cohen, you can see this incredible sense of envy of brothers and one of them has it and one of it doesn't. So Connor, when he sees whatever is in Cohen's hand, he wants to run over and rip it out of Cohen's hand. Now, Cohen is so laid back and he loves his brother so much that when that happens, Cohen often just, without crying, without fussing, he walks over and picks up what Connor was playing with and starts playing with that. Now, Connor sees that Cohen has found satisfaction in the original toy and Connor must think, ah, that really was the toy that I need. So he runs back and he snaps it out of Cohen's hand to which Cohen doesn't react and he goes up and picks up his original toy. Whatever toy Cohen has is the one Connor wants. And whatever toy Cohen has for himself, he's happy with, he's content. That's what he's calling us to is that contentment is better than envy. When will you have ever had enough? You won't. We're supposed to spend our lives in awe of what has been given to us instead of what we still want. That's where you will find happiness. You will find happiness in looking, rehearsing the many things that God has given to you and not staring constantly at the things that you don't have yet. As I was teaching my boys to pray, it was constantly asking for this, asking for that. Lord, give us this. Lord, give us that. And it occurred to me that I'm teaching them to frame their whole world around what they don't have yet. And so we began for a couple of weeks only doing prayers of thanksgiving. Thank you for our house, for our school, for daddy's job. Thank you that we're healthy. Thank you that we have friends. Thank you that we have enough to eat. Thank you that we have toys to play with. And I would hear them come over and over again. And when you really rehearse the goodness of God in your life, it will cause you not to resent other people for what they have. It will cause you to feel full from what God has given you. He challenges envy in this. He also briefly challenges laziness. In verse five, the person says, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. 
So we say your relationship to work, you can either wear yourself out and it'll never be enough, or you can say, hey, the rat race isn't worth it, so I ain't doing anything. And the picture is, is that he kind of folds his hands and he's just a consumer, and ultimately he ends up consuming himself. And he's saying your relationship with work shouldn't be one of envy, nor should it be one of laziness. To give up, to say, I can't keep up with the rat race, so I'm not going to try at all. I'm only going to be a consumer. Instead, he says, instead of either of those options, verse 6, he says, better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. A handful of quietness. In my house, we would love a handful of quietness. But that's not the quietness he's referencing here. The quietness he's referencing here is a quiet, calm, peaceful spirit that it was the result of contentment. Meaning I have enough to know that God has provided for me and is fond of me and is for me, but I don't have to panic and run and try and fill two hands with toil and vanity and work. Friends, do you have that one full hand of quiet contentment? That ultimately what I have, God gave me. And if he gives me more, that'll be great. But that that's what I'm going to be grateful for in what I have and not in what I could strive after. Our relationships with work to say contentment is better than envy or laziness. Contentment is better than envy or laziness. You ha- your hands are full enough to, provi- to be provided for but free enough to trust. Contentment can also come from ultimately not having others to share with. Look down with me again in verse 6. This is better of a handful of quietness than two handsful of toil and striving after the wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This is also vanity and an unhappy business. He's saying not only should we have contentment instead of envy and laziness, he said we should have contentment in finding that we have things to share with others. Did you catch that? Contentment is not just having enough for you to feel, self-focusedly feel, that this is enough. Contentment comes with this sense that you have not only enough for what God gives you, but you have enough to share with others. The person in this verse is working tirelessly, but he doesn't even have, despite the riches he has, he doesn't even have anyone to share it with couple of challenges in there. As hard as you're working, are you making sure that you can share with others? That the generosity of God is seen in the way that you live? I want you to see that. The other thing that I want you to see is that this generosity, this contentment, that he's finding contentment in being generous or excuse me, the person in this passage isn't being generous, and so he's not finding contentment. He has no one to give away his stuff to, and it's getting in the way of his contentment. It's making him miserable. If you're miserable, 
Maybe it's because you're not being generous enough. Maybe because you don't have enough people around you to share with. Contentment is better than envy or laziness or hoarding things to ourselves. Contentment is knowing that God has provided for us and knowing that in what he's provided, we can certainly share it with others. You see, contentment is better than envy, but you also see that humility is better than fame. Humility is better than fame. Look with me in verses 13 to 16. Just as Riken did, we're going to skip the middle section and close with it. 13 to 16. He says this. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about the sun along with that youth and who was to stand in the king's place. And there was no end of all the people of all whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity of striving after wind. Contentment is better than envy and humility is better than fame. Humility is better than advancement. It's a strange story that he tells briefly, but he's telling a story of a young poor man who somehow has worked his way all the way up to being the king of that very country. And when he was young, he used to listen. The poor and wise youth. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. He had this sense that he was poor, but he was wise. He was wise because he asked counsel of others. He was wise because he had things to learn. He was humble then. But then as he's gained power and gained fame, gained notoriety, he only keeps his own counsel. He only listens to the chamber of his own counsel. And it's vanity, a chasing after the wind. He's urging us that humility is better than fame and advancement. Humility is better than fame and advancement. Christian, are you still learning? There is this weird aspect to our faith that feels like you as a Christian will reach a certain point and then you've made it. No, you're not perfect yet, but you've sort of put the big sins to rest and you've sort of gotten enough of the good habits to feel dignified and you are there. It's not a biblical concept. We're supposed to be growing, soft-hearted, humble, and still learning even as we get older, not stuck in our ways. So there's the humility side of it, and there's the vanity side of seeking fame. We continue to learn, but we don't seek fame. Here he says, I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. And there was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and a striving after the wind. He's saying he's made it from poverty all the way to being a king. And he has all of this power. And no one will remember him once he's gone. No one will remember him once he's gone. If we fill our mind with this idea of a namesake legacy, we need to be confronted with the reality that no one will remember us. No one will remember us. Recently, we were at one of the parks near our house, and we went up there to let the kiddos play for a little bit and to just catch up. Aaron and I talk on the bench. While the kids were playing, we had 
a new friend come over and greet us and introduce himself. And he had been living in the area for about a year. And during our conversation, he had overheard that I was a pastor. And during our conversation, I had overheard that he'd been attending Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church. And he said that I've been going there for over a year. And I told him a little bit about our church plant and what we were doing. And he said, oh, that's so great. But before your church plant, where were you a pastor? This is six months after I've stopped working at LMPC. Six months. Someone's been worshiping for a year. And he didn't know that I had worked there. My heart sunk. I thought surely my fame, my name, my legacy would last more than six months. And I was crushed. Because I was way too focused on my legacy instead of the ongoing legacy of Jesus. Your legacy matters to individuals way more than it will to kingdoms. Your legacy matters to individuals way more than it will to kingdoms. You see, contentment is better than laziness or striving, toiling, envy. And you see, humility is better than kingdoms, better than fame, better than advancement, which will never be enough and no one will ever remember us. And then lastly, community is better than solitude. Community is better than solitude. Let's look verses 7 through 12. Surely, excuse me, he says 7 through 12. He says, once again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This is also vanity and unhappy business. Two are better than one because if they have a good reward for their toil, if they fall, one will lift up his fellow But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not one another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will not withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now I want to be careful as we approach these verses because these verses can feel like taking what is already difficult for someone and rubbing their nose in it. Two is better than one. I would imagine that for those who are older and maybe live in a nursing home or a residential facility, two is better than one is a difficult reminder. For those who have been single and long for a relationship, long to be married, this is a difficult reminder. And maybe those who struggle with same-sex attraction, maybe those who identify as gay but want to follow Jesus with their heart and fight their sin, Maybe this is particularly difficult to hear that two is better than one. Those of you who have been crushed by loneliness, I want you to know there's comfort in this. And then you add COVID-19 to all of this, and all of us are struggling with some form of loneliness. And yet here he tells us that community is better than going it alone. Community is better than solitude. Well, first of all, it's better because you have no one to share your work with if you're on your own. Verse nine, 
two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. What he's saying here is, is that you want to work. You want to join with others in your work. You don't want to do it alone. When our twins were born two and a half years ago, it was the first time that with each early and in the middle of the night waking up from a baby screaming that instead of Aaron taking care of all of it, of course I tried to help, but that Aaron brought me a screaming baby and I had to help that one because she was taking care of the other. Even though it was a hard season, she and I both look back on that with some tenderness. We were in it together. The work we were doing mattered. In fact, it was important that we did it together because the burden would have been too much on either one of us alone. Don't go it alone with your work, with your mission in life. Work as a team, include others. Don't be someone who keeps his own counsel, who doesn't humble himself or herself to the opinions of others. Work so that your result the fruit, the reward of your toil will be better than if you had done it alone. That's why we partner with ministries. That's why we partner as Christians to encourage each other. It's because when we are together, it's better than when we are alone in our work. It's also better because if you fall alone, no one's there to share your fall. He says in 10, say not why were the, uh, excuse me, Number 10, verse 10, he says, For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone, and when he falls, has not another to lift him up. This is true. You can't do it on your own. How are you getting near people because you can't do it on on your own? There's a challenge in here for both of us. For Christians who have more backup, who have more people, You need to be more proactive with those in our world who do not have more backup. Yes, it's the responsibility of both, but those of us who are secure in the backup we have need to constantly find people who need more backup and make them a regular weekly part of our life. But for those of you who don't have backup, who don't have things to share your fall with, I wanna tell you this, and I say it gently, you can't just sit on the sidelines. You can't wander into a church, never speak to anyone, never sign up for anything, never engage, and then say, nobody ever talked to me. You can't do that. Yes, it would be perfect if you could, but in the world that we live in, busy, nobody remembers each other's names, lots of distractions, you have to try a little bit too. The ones with lots of backup need to try harder, but you have to try a little too. And if you need help trying to engage, trying to share life, come ask any one of us on staff and we will help you get plugged in. But don't go it alone. The devil has got you when you're alone. And then he says in verse 11, no one to share warmth with. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Now, it sounds like intimacy. It sounds like a sexual reference, but it's really a desert analogy where the temperatures are so hot during the day and so cold at night. It's sojourning. It's traveling with someone. He says, when you're back to back, you can live in the warmth, sleep in the warmth of knowing you're not alone in the desert. 
We need to love those who are single or on their own as a residential nursing facility or those who just need extra warmth. We need to warm them with our love and presence. We need to love them so well that they can actually envision a life living single because they know living single is not the same thing as living alone. Who in your life can you share warmth with? Who in your life needs backup? Move towards them. And then he says, no one to share battles with. This is verse 12. And though a man may might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. He says, when you're going to come get knocked over, you need backup. Who do you have to fight with you and for you? If it's you versus the devil at 11 o'clock at night, you've already lost. And I want to give one couple of quick particular applications here. One way that this applies to is those that are struggling with same-sex attraction or identify as gay trying to follow Jesus. We as God's people have to practice radical community. How dare we call someone who struggles with that to a life of faithfulness followed by the empty reality of loneliness? We have to be the kind of church that people could experience so much life and connection that though their loneliness isn't fixed, they will never bear their loneliness alone. And I want to encourage you too that struggle with same-sex attraction. I'm being careful here because I know it's scary. People often confess that struggle to me because I'm a pastor. I'm a safe place. One of the things I often ask throughout the course of my friendship with those that struggle is I say, how many people have you told and how have they reacted? And for the overwhelming majority of people in this generation, the first response of Christians is pretty good. Not perfect, of course but it's humble and it's grace-oriented. Now, I'm not saying you could just trust anyone with that, but I am saying, you already know that you can't trust anyone with that, but I am saying that there, is there anyone in your life who you might be able to reach out to, who shows grace and maturity, who might be able to get near to you in that, get, that they would help you fight that battle? He's saying we have to fight together. And he's saying, is there anyone in your life that you could take a step of faith and get near so that you don't have to fight alone? I have a dear friend who recently shared with a couple at our church, not just me, but a couple at our church, I wasn't there, about his or her struggles the same-sex attraction. This was the couple's response. Wow, thank you for trusting us with this. We want to walk with you and know you and love you. But please, we need to earn that trust first. We need to know other parts about your story first. We don't know how to do this, but we want to be there for you if you'll help us. Can you imagine the encouragement that filled my friend that somebody was causing 
he or she to realize for the first time they wouldn't be alone. They wouldn't be left out in the cold. They wouldn't be forgotten. They wouldn't be left to fight for themselves. That there would be somebody else who would help them walk a lonely path. Ultimately, that's what the church is supposed to be. For the seniors who are living by themselves, for the single, for those who struggle with a unique or particularly heavy burden of some kind or another, is to say, you will never face this alone. You might be lonely, but you won't be alone in your loneliness. That's where he points to Jesus. He says, a cord of three strands will not easily be broken. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If Jesus can gather up those who are near and say he will give them rest, and he wants those who are weary and heavy laden, shouldn't we as his church be constantly gathered up, gathering up those that are alone and reminding them that they're not alone, that though they may feel lonely, they'll never be alone. Jesus won't crush a bruised reed and we as his church have to go around reminding all sorts of different people we won't crush them either and that they're not alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word and your grace. Pour out your Holy Spirit now, minister to us, form us into the kind of church that you would have us be. A church that causes people to never feel alone. A church that causes people to realize that whether they're cold spiritually, whether they've been knocked down and attacked, whether they're just feeling aimless and alone, that they have a place with us and that we're delighted to be that place. We thank you, Jesus, that you're that place for us and that you came and got near us instead of stayed aloof in heaven. Help us to be like you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.